We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, I'm Emily Nicola, and welcome to Shortcuts. This week, I'm joined by Mathieu Roach, host of The Backbench. Hello, Mathieu. Hi, Emily. Good to be on a show that neither of us normally host. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. Usually you're the host, I'm the guest on your show, and now I'm the host on the show that I don't host. It's amazing. <laughs> Next, we need to get me on Detour. It'll make me practice my French. <laughs> oh, yes. Great idea. Great idea. So today we're going to discuss the breaking news out of Gaza and because everything that's been coming out of Gaza has been, you know, making us think about the media crisis in Canada. Uh, we're going to be updating you on what's been going on with that. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Maura Peters, Yeji Jang, Michael Radmacher, Lisa Balkin, Gord Wernoff, Maenda Fortier, Heather Kane, and Joel. Hi, I'm Joel, an instrumentation tech from the nation's chemical valley, Sarnia, Ontario. I now support Canada Land after a year of freeloading the most interesting and informative content about my home country. I'm going to miss Jesse's live ad reads, but I'll sleep soundly from the comfort of my Douglas mattress, knowing my subscription helps Canada's independent fourth estate keep the powers that be on their toes. And you would subscribe to Canada Land too, if you were cool. Breaking tonight, a deal between Israel and Hamas to release some hostages and pause fighting. We have breaking news now out of Israel tonight. The Israeli cabinet has approved a ceasefire with Hamas. Yeah, well, basically, it's a one for three deal. For every one Israeli hostage freed, Israel will in turn release three Palestinian prisoners currently held by Israel. Those details are still coming in. Overnight on Wednesday, Israel and uh, Hamas agreed to a temporary ceasefire in Gaza for at least four days in order to let in aid and release at least 50 Israeli hostages in exchange for at least 150 Palestinians who had been jailed uh, in Israel. The deal was mediated by Qatar and Egypt. Israel said the ceasefire could be extended further as long as hostages continued uh, to be free. It's called as well a humanitarian pause. Uh, there's trucks of aid that are supposed to go in to uh, Gaza during that four-day period as well. We may be seeing hostages being released uh, as early as Thursday morning. Mathia, what struck you with that news after 47 days of continuous bombing? I think my reaction is it's it's certainly better than no deal would be one thing, mm. right? I think any sort of agreement that puts a even a temporary stop to just the absolute destruction that's been visited on the people of Gaza over the past, I guess, yeah, 40-odd days uh, since October 7th, I think is a good thing. My concern, though, is it is very much a short-term and temporary deal. So that's my sort of first thing is this notion of, okay, we're going to allow aid in, but it's only going to be for four days. 
makes me wonder whether the expectation on the part of Israel is that they will be able to sort of return to their campaign of bombardment after that ceasefire. The other thing is I think this should have happened ideally much sooner. And some of the comments that I've seen coming out of officials in the U.S. or, you know, whether it's elected officials or members of the government of some of the reasoning of why they did not try to reach a ceasefire sooner, why they think it was good that the ceasefire was not reached sooner, is quite troubling. You know, you have like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I saw, who's a representative in Florida, tweeting basically saying, you know, Israel would have, I guess, like, lost significant leverage by attempting to reach a ceasefire earlier. So it's in fact good that they had, you know, killed more Palestinian civilians before this deal is how I read it. Obviously, that's my interpretation. I also saw in an article in Politico, you know, some senior U.S. officials who were quoted anonymously, uh, but still, you know, identities verified by the journalists at Politico, basically saying part of the reason why they didn't want to agree to a ceasefire sooner was because the concern is that if journalists are able to go into Gaza and report more freely, it might sort of turn the tide of public opinion against Israel. Those being cited as reasons for the ceasefire not being reached sooner, I find very concerning because what it says Mm -hmm. to me is like, I think it's quite revealing, I guess, as to what the attitude of a lot of American politicians and then, you know, non-elected sort of foreign affairs officials is going to be towards this conflict going forward. Where do you think we stand now? Because there's been ongoing mobilization for a ceasefire. The words that are being used, as you're pointing out yourself, are not ceasefire. It's, you know, it's a pause. It's a four-day pause. Some of the intelligence that we had seen leaked in the past, has said, you know, if we have some pause, maybe it's going to be appeasing the, the, the public opinion that is turning against Israel in, in North America and everywhere else in the world as well. Where do you see this going from now? Do you think it's going to serve as a, I don't want to say as a distraction or as a, as a way to appease mobilization? Do you think people are still going to have their eyes on, on the ball when it comes to actually reaching some sort of just ceasefire for real when it comes to Gaza? So from what I've seen so far, and again, it's very early days of this new agreement, but I have not really seen as much celebration as maybe you would expect from people who had been calling for a ceasefire. I think because it is this temporary pause and it's not really promising any sort of prolonged stop to the Israeli military offensive in Gaza, I think the other reason why I don't really see this maybe working as an appeasement tactic is The position of people who support the IDF's actions has become even more entrenched. And I think that people who sort of have taken a position of approving the IDF's campaign in Gaza, who really want to do the sort of scorched earth, we need to make sure that we completely eliminate Hamas, and that's been their attitude, those people are not really happy that there's been any sort of pause and have become, I think, even more convinced that there's like this deep entanglement. I mean, Hamas is the government in Gaza. And so therefore, you know, we see people who are saying things like, oh, well, we can't trust anything that the Ministry of Health says because that's Hamas. There's this notion that, you know, Médecins Sans Frontières and the UN are like embedded with Hamas in a way that's deeply entangled. And so I see from, you know, columnists at the National Post, I see from like Andrew Coyne, like, you know, big sort of pundits in Canada who really are becoming ever more entrenched in this position that the sort of campaign by the IDF in Gaza needs to be really totalizing. I think because that is the attitude from the sort of pro-Israel, if we want to call it that camp, that is going to ensure that people who are calling for a ceasefire, calling for some sort of peace agreement to be reached, are going to remain mobilized, right? Because they see that as like, this is what we were fighting against. I hope that's that's the case. We're going to see in the next few days. But you're right. I'm not seeing any kind of, you know, celebration. Yay, uh, people clapping, people feeling like it's over, like you would have had if it felt like an actual promise for peace. So we'll see how, how this unfolds. 
You mentioned, uh, you know, the national polls and the coverage, and that's already one point that I think needed to be made. There's another issue that I wanted to address with you, because at the end of the day, this is a media criticism show and we're focused on, you know, the news and we're, we're being newsy about the news themselves and, and tr trying to talk about journalism itself. And I feel like there's been very little attention in Canada and in Western media in general in terms of the actual death of journalists in Gaza. And I wanted to touch on that with you. The numbers released by the Committee to Protect Journalists show that as of November 21st, at least 53 journalists and media workers have been killed since the war began on October 7th. To be more precise, there's been four Israeli killed on October 7th itself that were journalists, three Lebanese journalists, many of them at the border with South and Lebanon and Israel, and 46 Palestinian journalists that have been killed or have been confirmed dead as well since October 7th. 11 journalists have been reported injured, three journalists are reported as missing, and 18 journalists have been reported as arrested. So there's multiple assaults, threats, cyber attacks, censorship, and killing of family members as well as journalists we've seen on social media, on Al Jazeera, on, on a couple of uh, networks, Palestinian journalists having to learn while on the air that some of their family members had been killed by some of the, the Israeli bombing of, of Gaza. And the deadliest day for the war for journalists was October 7th when six people, six journalists were killed. And on the November 18th alone, five other journalists were, were killed. You know, I remember, obviously I'm based in Montreal, I remember very vividly when, you know, there was this attack on Charlie Hebdo in France, how everybody was, you know, je suis Charlie, and everybody, every time there's that there's been some attacks in the West on journalists, how the mobilization has been swift. And uh, the language that I'm seeing from people who are supposed to be about the protection of free speech, protection of freedom of press, in the West on the issue of Palestinian journalists being killed, as far as I'm concerned, the, the silence is deafening. Have you been noticing the same thing? I have been noticing that the coverage in the West has been quite scant of the death of these journalists in Gaza and like throughout the rest of, you know, the Palestinian territories um, and Israel as well. Two things come to mind for me. The first is that this is not the first time that there's been killings of journalists who've been reporting on the conflict in Israel-Palestine. In 2021, when sort of the ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah was very much in the news, that there was a number of incursions by Israeli settlers and by the IDF into these settlements in the West Bank. Around that same time, the Associated Press building in Gaza, uh, where their offices were located, was basically blown up by the IDF. Uh, the journalists who were there were given an hour's notice to leave. The reasoning for this was that the building was apparently being used as a Hamas base, but it was un that was never really properly confirmed afterwards in any sort of like reported out way. You know, there was, of course, the killing of Shirin Abu Akhlech last year, I think a year and a half ago. And so I, I think it, there's this sort of dynamic where, you know, when journalists in the West are targeted, we accept that they are being targeted for their journalism, right? With Charlie Hebdo, you know, feel however you want about the actual coverage that they engaged in. You know, they were members of the media and, like, do not deserve to be targeted for the fact of producing some sort of media journalism, however you feel about the content of the coverage. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. when journalists in, you know, the Palestinian territories are attacked, 
there is this sort of notion of they are collateral damage in an ongoing war or that they are being attacked or their buildings or offices are being attacked uh, because of proximity to Hamas, which is sort of the same like language that we hear now about the attacks on hospitals in Gaza, right? Oh, it's a Hamas base. And so it doesn't matter that there's people there that are doing really essential work. There's too much of an affiliation or too much suspicion that there's an affiliation with a terrorist group and therefore we need to attack it. It becomes this like justified killing as though you know, as though we don't expect that journalists are going to be in the very places that are the center of the conflict, right? Reporting out the news. And I think that one thing that I haven't seen covered enough as well is like, sort of going back to that comment that I mentioned earlier from like the Biden administration officials who were kind of talking about, you know, if we have journalists easily able to access Gaza and easily able to report, that turns the tide of public opinion in a meaningful way. Like what information people in the West actually receive massively affects how we feel about the conflict, right? And we see that there's journalists for, say, CNN, who will do things like embed with the IDF and follow the IDF along with their operations. You know, that's sort of one side of the narrative that people get. I don't want to say necessarily that journalists are being deliberately targeted because I don't feel like I have enough information to make that as a substantiated claim. But I think that certainly there are reasons to suspect that the IDF has, you know, an incentive to, in some cases, prevent people from engaging in reporting. And when you look at the history of journalists being targeted in Gaza and in the West Bank, it sort of becomes a bit glaring to, like, not at least entertain that as a possibility when we take attacks on journalism in the West so much more seriously. Yeah, no, that when you look at the proportion of journalists that exist in Gaza and the proportion of those that, you know, have been killed versus those that are still alive versus the proportion of general population of Gaza that has been killed, the, the proportion of journalists killed is much, much higher. And so just in there, there's reasons to to ask questions. I guess for me, and, and it resonates with what you're saying, is is that basically the erasure of, of Palestinian journalists is double or double twofold. There is the uh, erasure of their that, but there's also the erasure of their work and their lives when it comes to, mis- to, to Western media. If And you mentioned CNN yourself, CNN is not just embedded in the IDF. CNN is presenting itself as, you know, having access to what's going on in Gaza. And their access can only be in a world where you pretend that Palestinian journalism doesn't exist. And the idea that people that are embedded in the culture, who are part of the culture, who's, who have been living in, Ga- in Gaza maybe sometimes forever, that their journalism doesn't really count, that you need to have Western access to Gaza for that for information to be quote unquote verified and quotable and and usable in Western media that contributes to I guess a gap between what you're seeing on social media where where Palestinian journalism is very much visible and what you see in our media where their work is basically never used or quoted. And so that creates a gap in terms of what we see or what we've been seeing in Canadian media and, and this idea that well we don't have Canadian journalists on the ground, therefore we don't know, therefore we cannot we cannot have eyes, you know, on on what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, I think this is a common issue that comes up where there's this notion of like, there is such a thing as completely objective journalism. And we should only really hear from voices who are able to have this sense of remove and objectivity uh, from whatever story that they're covering. And so I think it's like odd to me that you see, for instance, and I know like The Breach did their sort of report where they analyzed coverage specifically from CTV, looking at like what voices Mm -hmm. were and were not included in that coverage. 
where, you know, Israeli voices compared to Palestinian voices were represented much more. Often Palestinian voices were not journalists. They were people that were, it was like streeters, essentially, where you're talking to people that are, you know, talking about, well, we don't have water, you know, we don't have this, that, but not really getting Palestinian analysis. Meanwhile, though, you know, Israeli government officials are treated as sort of authorities and their word is taken kind of completely seriously. And like, that's not to say that you shouldn't hear the IDF line. It's important to know like what the government line is on something like this, particularly when it's like a conflict where what the IDF does, what their perspective is on things is actually very important to know about. But to have that perspective and then to sort of systematically exclude or not seek out perspectives from Palestinians who are also working on the ground, who have sort of the lived experience of uh, residing in Gaza, residing in the West Bank, and being on the other side of these IDF military operations. It's like, we can't say that one of these perspectives is objective and the other is not. They're both highly mediated by those people's positions in their respective societies, right? Absolutely. You know, if people haven't looked at the study uh, published by The Breach on CTV National News, it's, it's really interesting. And I wish there were more on different Canadian media on that because I don't think CTV is unique in, in any way. They just happen to be the one that that there's a study on for at, at this point. There's been also, you know, some information, some data that has been coming out of the U.S., for example, comparing the number of Israeli death versus mentions of Israeli death and Palestinian death versus mention of uh, Palestinian death in the New York Times. And what you see is that underrepresentation of Palestinian death versus in the coverage, although even in the media that have been talking about the conflict a lot. And I, I wish, and maybe that's a, an open call to action to whoever is listening. I wish there was people who are good with, you know, quantitative analysis who could be doing that as well for Canadian newsrooms. I think especially in, in print, it would be pretty doable to have a comparison of, you know, how the, the, the kind of words that our media have been using and the number of mentions. And it's, it would be pretty easy, I think, to build graphs out of that and have a, some sort of data on what's been the over or under representation of certain realities in our media. And just as well, maybe have some discussion of the language that people are using, you know, who is dead and who has been killed and who killed and who has been killed, right? The use of the passive voice or or the use of euphemism or the use of very, very strong emotional language to talk about one side versus the other. I think if we are able to document that and put numbers on that and put graphs on that, the idea that there's a bias in our media is not going to be just, oh, I feel this, but it could be something that we have very clear data on. We just need I guess the journalism professors and the, the quantitative and analysts to get on, on, on that ball because I think as long as we don't have a clear view of what's going on, everybody just is feeling, you know, like media are not representing their sides or, or their views based on just their instinct. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes, like, the passive voice is something that's interesting where I think sometimes the passive voice sort of comes out as a result of, well, you know, this is like reporting that's taking place in a war zone. It can sometimes take days to, you know, verify exactly what happened. I think that we saw that with like the Al-Aqsa hospital sort of bombing. It was like unclear for several days whether, you know, did the IDF do this? Was this a Hamas rocket that like didn't really land where it was supposed to go? And so in cases like that where you're trying to avoid like assigning blame or responsibility before the facts have been reported out, it makes sense in some cases to speak that way. In other it's just cases, become prudent. 
Yeah. Yeah, just to be prudent and to make sure that you're not spreading information or, or making an accusation that turns out to not be true, and then you have to issue a correction. In other cases, though, where it is very clear who's responsible, it's interesting that, you know, when we are talking about Israeli civilians who are taken hostage, it's like very clear, okay, well, this is Hamas did this and we can assign responsibility. Most of the time, not always, I have seen some reports about hostages that use the kind of passive voice like died as opposed to the active voice was killed. But the majority of the time, it definitely skews towards assigning responsibility with the people who killed Israeli civilians. On the flip mm-hmm. side, though, it's like, you see this with journalists even, like, oh, how many journalists dead in Gaza? And then it's, like, left unclear as to why they died. In the vast majority of cases, it is as a result of Israeli military action, and that blame is not being assigned. And I feel like we had this conversation sort of in media in 2020 um, in the wake of just, like, the massive explosion of Black Lives Matter protests of, like, how do we talk about, say, when police in North America are involved in the death of somebody. If a police officer kills someone, can we not say that a police officer killed someone? Why are we using this sort of euphemistic language with, like, officer-involved shooting? And I think a lot of newsrooms have really gotten better since then in terms of their practice of how they talk about it because it was such a widely discussed phenomenon. And so I think that that same lens of criticism needs to be applied here, it feels in some ways like the lessons of 2020 and how that might actually apply to how we cover completely different sort of news stories, like hasn't really been learned. This episode is brought to you by Article. It might be time to freshen up your home and elevate your space. Maybe it's time to say goodbye to that rickety table that you rescued from the side of the road and get one that you actually love and and that you know will last a lifetime. They believe in delightful design for every home. And they've got some really affordable prices. Because they're online only, they can give you great prices because they don't have the costs of operating a brick and mortar store. I have article furniture in my home. We have it here in the office. It's sturdy, it's well-made, it looks good, it's comfortable. Article offers fast and affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada, and they're offering our listeners $50 off of your purchase of 100 bucks or more. To claim, visit article.com slash CanadaLand, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Matthias, you know, we always take a break in the middle of our program to duly note something that we've been saying in the last week. What do you have in mind for this week? So this is taking it a bit off-piste from Canadian media, but one thing that I've been paying attention to, both because I was sort of affected by it when it was going on and also because we've covered it a little bit on the backbench, is the entertainment industry strikes in the U.S. So for people that have been following this, the Writers Guild of America went on strike on May 2nd. I was literally there when it happened. I saw the picket line at the studio. It was not good. Their strike wrapped up. SAG-AFTRA, which is the actors union, uh, declared a strike at the end of June. Their strike is still sort of ongoing. Their negotiating committee has voted to approve a deal. The deal is now out to the members of the union for ratification. I bring this up for two reasons. One is that what happens with the entertainment industry unions in the U.S. actually does really impact Canadians quite significantly. First off, because a ton of Canadians work on American productions that are shot in Canada. So a massive, massive amount of the film industry in Canada actually shut down completely, more or less, during the writers and actors strikes over the course of the summer. That affects people who work uh, from everything from like catering, carpentry, you know, set design, like all of these sorts of people uh 
are massively impacted by sort of the contract negotiations that are happening in the States. The other reason I bring it up is because one huge issue that we've seen in these writers and actors strikes has been like basically protections for writers and actors against uh, incursions into their work by artificial intelligence. So the Writers Guild of America was actually able to get quite good guarantees surrounding like their work not being used as a basis for AI, AI not being trained on things that are produced Mm. uh, by Writers Guild writers, uh, Writers Guild writers not being required to uh, work off a script that was originally produced by AI and then kind of doctor it up. They got a lot of the concessions that they were looking for relating to AI in their contract. What's interesting is that the SAG contract that is now out for ratification has not actually been as successful, I guess, in terms of like the original deal uh, providing protections for actors against, say, scans of their face and body being taken for use later on. Like one of the huge issues in this strike was background actors are often required to, when they work on things like Marvel movies, uh, submit to full face and body scans. And the idea is that, you know, in the future studios won't have to use as many extras and we'll be able to save costs that way. There are not really as many protections for actors as people had been hoping for. I think that the deal will likely still be ratified. But again, so many Canadians work in and adjacent to the U.S. entertainment industry. Also, the sorts of conditions that Canadian actors unions are able to get are largely dictated by negotiations that happen in the States in the sense that our industry will sort of match their standards. So all of that's to say, I'll be paying attention to what's going on. I think it's interesting plug to go back and listen to our Backbench episode from mid-October, our recording of our live show that we did in Vancouver, where we talked about the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes and their impact on Canada. That's what I've been thinking about. Duly noted, Mattia. Emily, what do you have to duly note today? One of the things that's been on my mind is this case of actually death. Again, sorry, we're talking about death a lot this today, but uh, Suleiman Fakiri, who had died in an Ontario jail uh, nearly seven years ago now uh, in 2016, while he was in custody and uh, having a mental health crisis. It's a case that had been causing a lot of news coverage and, and a lot of uh, turmoil as, as well because of you know the issue of mental health, people in mental health crisis die, dying in the, at the hand of police is, is always something that that creates a lot of uh, media attention. And the new findings that we have now is that the coroner is saying that he should not even have been in the jail cell to begin with at, at the time of, of his death. And it just reminds us that the issue of people with mental health issues either killed or by police or dying while in custody and the police not doing anything with other health issues that they might be having as well. That's something that, you know, is recurring in Canada. It's never going away. And I feel like it's even since the pandemic, there's just even more people who are struggling, even more people who are sometimes also, you know, homeless. And that issue is is just not going away. And so the fact that there is a coroner inquest now and that we're learning more about what happened then, I hope is something that's going to help inform the conversation about what should be changing and what should be not happening anymore into the system. And so that's one story that I'll be continuing to follow closely. And I encourage everyone to do the same as well. Yeah, this is something I feel like has just been lost a little bit in the news cycle for me that I hadn't heard about. But you're right, this issue is not going away. Certainly the amount of like visible uh, people in distress since the pandemic that I've been seeing just anecdotally out and about in Toronto and also visiting other major cities has been a lot more. The solution for that cannot be to put people in jail and 
create situations where they're going to be unsafe. I think we need to have a real conversation about how we deal with these sorts of cases. So duly noted. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder. I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So, Mateo, we've been talking about Gaza, and, and one thing that's always in the background of every conversation about Gaza, and especially media coverage of Gaza, is the crisis of confidence in Western media in general. It's, it's been growing. And I, myself, in my own social circles, have never seen so much conversation about how Western media is broken. I don't know about you. It's a common theme that comes up among people I know who do not work in the media. Like, it's not just media workers yeah, that exactly. are talking about it, right? No, it's everybody that has a, any kind of concern or interest in the world <laughs> is is seems to have frustration with media right now. And so it's not, you know, there's been a lot of conversation, I think, in the past coming from, you know, for example, people who believe in conspiracy theory, who don't believe in facts, who criticize journalism and the kind of, you know, criticism of media that we've been seeing, for example, in the Ottawa convoy and whatnot. That's not, that's not where we're, what I'm talking about now. Maybe it's a mix of the two. But for example, in Quebec, uh, there was just a Léger poll that found that 42% of the Quebec population has little or no confidence in publications that really news from traditional me media. That's 42%. And that 44% of the Quebec population think that traditional media manipulate the information they broadcast. That's a lot. And so that's the context in which we're having a conversation about is Western media broken? It's a context that resonates with a lot of people. And, you know, there's the obviously Bill C-18 that is affecting this conversation with the Online News Act that is, you know, taking Canadian media as well away from 
Facebook and Instagram for now. There's this ongoing tug of war going on with, with Google as well. How do you think what the federal government has been doing impacting this media crisis? Oh, not not well. I mean, I think I think the federal government, I will I will give them like the smallest shred of credit for at least recognizing that there is a media crisis and that something should be done about it. That being said, I think the two big pieces of legislation that we've seen come out that they have tried to use to resolve this issue or sort of ameliorate conditions, which is like the sort of Bill C-11 giving subsidies to journalistic organizations and then Bill C-18 trying to force tech companies to in some way pay for like whatever revenue they maybe generate through link sharing. Both of them have like kind of completely blown up, right? So I think if people... Most people I know, right, I'm 25, like the sort of average age of people in my social circles is I would say kind of like 23 to like 33 is sort of where we're Mm -hmm. at. Most of us do not have newspaper subscriptions or, you know, if people do, they have one subscription. Most people do not have cable television, so they're not watching TV news. And so the way that I for a very long time got my news was through social media And it's become just so much more difficult to access really any sort of content that way. I think the other issue, too, is like there's this notion of, well, if government is subsidizing media more, whether this is actually accurate or not, like I don't think that government subsidies of newspapers has necessarily actually resulted in, say, you know, your Toronto Stars, your Globe and Mails, your National Posts being less willing to criticize the government. I don't, I haven't seen that direct shift in coverage. But I do think that if you already perhaps are predisposed to distrust traditional media and also know, well, these journalists are being subsidized by the government, you might sort of establish a a correlative or causative relationship that may not even be there and say, okay, well, these journalists are bought out. Like, how am I supposed to trust anything that they say? And so I, I think it's very unfortunate that sort of the two marquee pieces of legislation that this government has rolled out to try and save journalism, quote unquote, have served to, firstly, make people trust journalism less because they feel like journalists are mouthpieces of the government, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly. And then secondly, to make news more difficult to access because you can't see it in your Google search results, you can't see it on Facebook. And so I'm not sure what exactly the solution is to this crisis of confidence, but it it seems like the government has really missed the mark. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things what you said, and, and it goes back to my point of there's media criticism that's coming from the right and the one that's coming from the left, and those are very two different ways of criticizing the media. What you're talking about, you know, media being bought out, I think that many people may have not noticed, but actually there's been an increase just this week in the fall economic statement of Canadian journalism, labor tax credit. And so there's going to be retroactively to from January 1st, even uh, now a higher limit of how media comp- companies can can get reimbursed for their labor costs per eligible employee. And so they're trying to help the media even more than before because probably of the aftermath of C-18 and just the general economic climate. And so they're doubling down on that in in a context where a lot of uh, media companies, and you name a few, are really, really struggling. At the same time, there's also a lot of maybe too little, too late on that front. One of the cases that have been making the rounds where I am is uh, TVA, uh, which is uh, part of the the Quebecor uh, news network, 
has laid off more than 500 employees, which is a third of their workforce here in Quebec. That is a seismic change in terms of media. And they're basically going to be outsourcing a lot of their TV production. And I'm saying this because, you know, except for news, Canadian TV production in general is already, I don't want to say dead, but a lot of, you know, English Canada listens to a lot of American television, right? And so although English Canada is much bigger in terms of numbers, the audience for Francophone uh, television in Canada is, is, is actually way bigger than for Anglophone uh, television in Canada. And so if Francophone TV in Canada is not doing well, nobody's doing well is what I'm trying to say. You know, what they're saying and what's been coming out of, of that analysis is their viewers are aging. And that kind of like what you were saying, my generation, I'm 35, 10 years older than you, are not watching necessarily television the way that Gen X and boomers are watching it. And Gen Z definitely not at all. And and part of that is it's just users having different habits. And part of it is just how society has changed and media haven't followed. We've just seen some really interesting data coming out this week from the Canadian Association of Journalists in terms of how white Canadian media still are. And that's part of it. But I guess my generation, your generation, are just also not necessarily finding themselves represented in Canadian media. And that really does not help with people wanting to consume that content. And that's a very, very different way of criticizing Canadian media than saying, well, they're bought off by the government and it's all a big conspiracy because they cannot criticize the government anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's just a very different thing. I would be interested to know, like looking at the CAJ data, I don't think that they collected data, uh, at least not that I saw, on like the age of people working in newsrooms or certainly of like TV anchors as well. Because I know that that's one thing that I notice is I feel like a lot of the broadcasters um, that I watch, I, I really only ever watch uh, broadcast TV if I'm like at my mom's house because she'll put on the sort of local news or whatever. I notice that a lot of the broadcasters that I'm watching are like the same people that were doing the news, you know, 15 years ago when I was like 10 and first started watching it. There's some turnover that you sometimes see, but I think that there's a, a certain notion that I feel, at least among people that I know, that there's a real like lack of variety in terms of voices that you actually get on cable news, that you see really sort of like one perspective, even if maybe the specific person who's delivering you the news changes. There are sort of two sorts of coverage that I want to see more of. One is like in-depth local journalism. And I think that if the government is going to fund news, that is the type of news that makes the most sense for them to fund. Because then at that point, you're funding journalists who likely are not primarily covering the federal government. They might be covering municipal or provincial community issues. And so that sort of perceptual issue is a bit less acute in terms of like, oh, well, they're receiving money from this group that they're supposed to cover. Obviously, local journalists also do cover the federal government, but it's often not their main beat. That's something I would like to see more of, that I feel like when I am in Nova Scotia, the coverage that is available of news in the province is often not that good, which I find quite upsetting. And then the other thing that I'd want to see more of is really, yeah, like a better diversity of voices nationally, right? Because, you know, most of the journalists I imagine that CAJ was counting in this survey are reporting in communities that are not like super majority white. They're reporting in like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, places that are much more diverse, So even if the sort of demographics and data maybe match the whole profile of the country, they don't match the cities in which these journalists are working. And I think that that's a problem. 
Yeah, no, that's a good thing. If you want to go and check out the Canadian Association of Journalists survey, one of the things that they've included in their methodology is proportion of diversity versus their audience. And so if a, a media is Toronto-based, their overrepresentation of or underrepresentation of certain demographics that factored, they factored in that they're actually working in Toronto. And you can see that, you know, they've that they've gathered data from 270 three newsroom across the country. You say that over half of news, uh, newsroom staff identify as women. So in terms of gender equality, we're pretty much there, although we need to, to look into the details in terms of, you know, who's higher up. But that there's still three quarters of journalists who identify as, as white, 19% as visible minority, 5% as, as indigenous. And that when you climb up the ladder, you know, when it comes to supervisors in Canadian media, then 84% of them are white. I have to say, Matea, because you know I'm from I'm from Quebec. That basically, there's hardly any newsroom that's based in Montreal that has, first of all, agreed to participate in the in the CAJ survey. That's in and of itself an issue. I know that there's the FPGQ, and we have our own journalism association, but it's not doing a survey like this. And so there's just Quebec media refusing to participate. Uh, La Presse has participated, and the result is that when you look at their full time staff. 98% of them are white. So basically, there's like 140 people that are working at La Presse, more or less. There's one Black person, two Middle Eastern person, and everybody else is white. And the Devoir has refused to participate, but if they had, they would not look any better. And I'd be very curious in, in terms of, you know, radio and TV. And so when I'm saying that, you know, of course, TVA is having an audience that is aging and younger population are not necessarily finding themselves in Quebec journalism and in Quebec media, that's the kind of data that we're looking at. It's appalling that that's where still we're, we're at in, in, in 2023. And the refusal to collect data and to participate in such a, in such a survey is not working in terms of hiding the issue because I'm on it and you're on it, Matthias. So we see the people who just refuse to participate because they're just ashamed of their own data. Uh, it's not working. We still see you guys. <laughs> and I think, you know, it to kind of circle back, I guess, to tie the two segments of this show together, like it really does then make you think of like, well, what is not being said in these organizations coverage because of who is not in the room, right? What questions are not being asked in those rooms? What guests are not being booked because people don't have connections with certain communities? You know, it's it's no surprise then that you're going to see in a lot of cases coverage that is one-sided of issues that predominantly affect, like, say, racialized communities. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be the one Black person or the one of the two Middle Eastern people working at La Presse. To have to be sort of the sole voice for your community in that space just sounds unbelievably unpleasant. I guess that's... That's, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> meet me. Meet yeah. me, Matea. <laughs> you are stronger than the troops. We are so lucky to have you in our space. <laughs> Thank you. Although I, because I'm a freelance worker, I don't count in. I work in with several newsroom, but I I don't count in any of the stats. You're not so helping their data look any better. <laughs> I'm just watching watching the numbers yeah. uh, and eating some popcorn. Yep. <laughs> Before we end, I just wanted to maybe point out because we've been pretty bleak so far. So there's one thing that makes me hopeful in terms of how people are responding to the media crisis. There's a new online platform that's just been launched that's called Unrigged, and it's basically a coalition or a cooperative 
narrative of 20 local, regional, and national media outlets, pretty much from the left, that have decided to build basically an umbrella website. There's Press Progress, there's Bar Patch, there's The Hoser, there's New Brunswick Media Co-op, The Breach, Resolve, Ricochet, The Maple, there's a lot of them. Pivot here in Quebec, so there's a couple of, of news organizations that maybe didn't have the capacity to be publishing every day, or that it's a lot of work if you're going to go on each of those people, you know, website to have a sense of what's going on in, in local news in Canada. But that now, because they've decided to aggregate, it's actually a pretty useful tool I found so far in terms of being able to just go to one place and find local news from both Alberta and New Brunswick and Quebec and Ontario from independent uh, newsrooms. So just wanted to flag that that's a way that people have found around for example, their ban, the ban on social media that, that is really impacting uh, the reach, a lot of Canada, Canada's smaller newsroom. And so, yeah, it's not just bleak out there. There are some people who are trying to figure this out. Yeah, I really hope it takes off because, you know, like, again, for me, living and working in Toronto, but trying to follow news in Nova Scotia and on the East Coast more broadly, I find it's often very difficult to get any sort of high quality news to like, make sure that it breaks through even on my Twitter feed if I'm following journalists or following news organizations. And then the other thing, too, is for me, you know, hosting a, a show that is federal and trying to pay attention to what's happening in other parts of Canada, there are so many ways in which, like, the crises that we're facing in different parts of the country that feel very regional are actually, like, super tied to things that are happening in other places. If you look at, for instance, like, how provincial governments are having to deal with climate crises, whether it's flooding or wildfires. Like, that's an issue where there are very specific local stories that are of particular concern to the communities in which they're taking place, but that people in the rest of Canada really should know about and, like, learn from. Because, you know, one month it's Nova Scotia, next month it's BC, right? Uh, the parental rights thing is, like, another issue where we've seen sort of local coverage pop up of, like, in New Brunswick, the government there really going hard on, you know, we need to out kids to their parents in schools, essentially. Right. That's what parental rights means, I suppose, to the conservatives there. And it's not just New Brunswick, right? You then see that discourse kind of cropping up. And if you're only really getting local news in bits and spurts from the place that you live, you're not going to see those connections. And so to have a platform that really is integrating coverage from all different parts of the country, I think could be really useful in ensuring that people stay informed, not just about their own community, but about communities really everywhere. That's a shortcut this week. Thank you for joining me. I'm Emily Nicola. And obviously, you can join us on Twitter at CanadaLand and email me uh, about the show at emily at CanadaLand.com. Where can people find you, Mathieu? You can find me on The Backbench, which is CanadaLand's federal politics show. We release episodes every two weeks uh, on Tuesdays. So our next one will be coming up this Tuesday, uh, November 28th. You can also find me on Twitter, not tweeting that much, but still there, at Matea Roach. This episode is produced by Aviva Lessard, with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Joffo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliesi. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 1019 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, 
invites, and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you.